This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Professor Stephen Weitzman. He is the Abraham M. Ellis Professor of Hebrew and Semitic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Ella Daravoff Director of the Katz Center of Advanced Judaic Studies. Professor Weitzman specializes in the Hebrew Bible and the origins of Jewish culture. Recent publications include Surviving Sacrilege, Cultural Persistence in Jewish Antiquity, Religion and the Self in Antiquity, The Jews, A History, and A Biography of King Solomon, part of the New Jewish Life series, which published by Yale University Press in 2011. So I'm thankful to invite Professor Weitzman to the Letter of Liberty show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So would you like to share with our listeners an outline of the Solomon story? I'd be happy to. So... Um, the Solomon story, as it appears in the Book of Kings, is part of a much larger story about the history of Israel. Um, and in the previous books of First and Second Samuel, we're told the story of Solomon's father, King David, how he became king, um, his trials and tribulations, his adultery with Bathsheba, um, and the and the family conflict that he faced um, from his son Absalom. And so Solomon, King Solomon, is born into that family. He's wasn't meant to be the king, he wasn't the oldest um, or the most handsome, um, but through a set of circumstances, he emerges as the, as the next ruler. So the story of Solomon begins with the story of how he succeeds to the throne, um, and then moves from there to how he acquired divine wisdom. And we have a few stories in the Bible about how he used that wisdom, including the very famous story about the two women vying for the same baby. Um, we hear about King Solomon's um, success as a ruler, how he was honored by um, kings from around the world, um, the um, treasures that he amassed, and his most ac- important accomplishment from the pi- perspective of the Bible, the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then at the end of the story, we have a twist, because this very wise and successful ruler um, ends up failing catastrophically, uh, betraying God, following the gods of his many, many wives, <coughs> and becoming a bad king in the end. Yeah. So that's his story in a nutshell, as it's told in the Book of Kings. Yeah, I, mean, I, I took a sneak peek at your book, and in the Bible, the main thesis is that because he married foreign wives and started worshiping idols, he fell away. And this was kind of a great folly on his part, especially since he was known as the wisest man in the Bible. But you pinpointed the reason for Solomon's fall to his wisdom, actually. And that's an interesting point. And I wonder why you pinpointed it to his wisdom rather than his folly. So I should note that the the biblical account of King Solomon um, leaves a lot of details out of the story. Um, And it leaves the reader with a lot of puzzles. So... It never tells us what Solomon looks like. It reveals very little about what's going on in his head. Um, and we really, um, even as we're told about Solomon's many, many accomplishments, what's going on internally within him is, is left in the dark. And so it really fell to later readers 
to really explain the puzzles of Solomon's behavior. And one of those puzzles was why this very wise king did such a foolish thing at the end of his life. How, how, how is it possible to, to know everything, as Solomon is alleged to have known, to really understand all the secrets of, of existence and all the secrets of the human heart, and yet act so foolishly and stupidly at the end of your life? So the book explores how various interpreters, various readers of the Bible, try to answer that question. And as you point out, one of the answers to that question is that the problem was actually in Solomon's wisdom. It was that he knew things that human beings weren't supposed to know, or he um, uh, uh, used his wisdom in a way that was very counterproductive. And so in my account of Solomon's life, I tried to draw on those interpretive traditions to make the case that what did Solomon in the what undid him in the end was not that he knew too little, but that he knew too much for a human being. Yeah, and it's interesting, especially if you look into Solomon's backstory when he actually pleads to God for wisdom and knowledge. And the interesting thing is that God does, in fact, grant him that wisdom and knowledge, plus also the riches and popularity and power and all that stuff. Um, that's correct. So his wisdom comes from God, um, and it. we know from that very famous story of how the two women came before King Solomon with the baby, and each you know each woman claimed the baby was his own, and he uses a trick in order to figure out who the real mother is. So we know from that story, which is in 1 Kings chapter 3, that um, he understands human nature, and he understands how people think and what motivates people. Um, but none of that seems to work in his own case. So, you know, some people, some interpreters suggest that um, God really uh, gave him wisdom, but not because God necessarily wanted him to have that wisdom, but because um, God really saw Solomon as uh, uh, as. God really wanted uh, the downfall of Israel in the end, and he gave Solomon his wisdom in order, precisely in order for Solomon to misbehave in ways that would lead to Israel's destruction. And that would be interesting because we have moments where prophets warn about Israel's destruction if they don't repent, and it seems as if God is also warning the people of Israel to repent, but they still fall down anyway. So I wonder how it would square with God's goodness and his love for the people of Israel that he would want their downfall, at least according to that explanation, which is probably not the only one there, but which provides some interesting insights and poses some interesting problems. Yes, I really should qualify what I just said. So earlier in in the books of Samuel, um, we learned that the Israelites wanted to have a king for themselves, and God did not want them to have a king. And the reason God didn't want them to have a king was because God... It was their king. And so for them to embrace a human king was in a way to reject God. But the Israelites wanted that. And so uh, God, interestingly enough, uh, concedes to their wish. He says, okay, you want a king, you can have a king. Um, and that's how King Saul became, became the ruler of Israel, and then King <coughs> David after him. But from the very beginning of the story, the reader understands that the institution of the kingship in Israel was a violation of God's will. But God did not want that. And so what I think, when I say that God kind of was planning the destruction of Israel, it's not that he wanted Israel to be destroyed, but the act of embracing a king was a kind of sin for which the Israelites needed to be punished. 
interesting. And if you read the whole story of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you see that this institution that the Israelites wanted, the institution of the kingship, leads to misery, it leads to mistakes, it leads to catastrophe, and finally it leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. So the story of Solomon is really just one episode in that larger drama of, of how Israel um, was punished by God because of its embrace of the institution of the kingship. And I want to bring back the question of kingship. I've heard arguments that said that the original system of rule by God didn't exactly work because in the book of Judge in the book of Judges you have not only flawed leaders like Jephthah and Samson who are violent people, but you also have rape and murder and ethnic warfare in the later parts of Judges, and that's supposed to be a sign that since every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, that is a sign that kingship was needed at the point. What do you think of that? Right, so that's an excellent point, and, and so in the earlier book of Judges, um, you basically have a series of stories that, that show why the Israelites would want a king. They were uh, disorganized, uh, fragmented, often at odds with each other. They faced various threats from external powers from other neighboring peoples. And so all that was an argument for um, centralizing power and, and having a central leader. So what you really have play out over the course of the Bible is a kind of political tragedy where, on the one hand, the Israelites need, it, need that kind of leadership. They need human political leadership in order to face the threats that they face. Um, but on the other hand, it's a violation of God's will <coughs> and a rejection of God's kingship in order for them to develop the monarchy. So you kind of have a very complex uh, political tragedy unfolding, and the Bible doesn't offer a clear resolution to how you're supposed to deal with that kind of conflict. Interesting. And I also want to bring back a question to the book of Deuteronomy, where there is a passage where God makes provisions for how a king should have resources. It almost assumes that there is going to be a king, and sometimes it can be taken as if God is endorsing the idea of kingship itself, but I've always taken that to be an example of what God is prescribing in the case there is a kingship rather than an endorsement of monarchy itself. What do you think? I think that's a fair point. Um, the book of Deuteronomy <laughs> does seem to imagine or envision that there's going to be a king in Israel, um, and the laws that it prescribes are, are meant to kind of curb the power of, of the king. Um, but as we noted later on in Samuel, um, it's very clear that God sees the kingship as an act of rebellion against him. And um, that's the view that prevails in the end. And, you know, and eventually, the Jews have to learn to live without a king, without any kind of centralized political authority of their own. Um, and um, uh, that's, that's how their culture develops after the end of the Bible. Yeah, that's interesting, because the Jews, for some... Jews in some way have tended to have a culture of exile and diaspora, like they're outspread and they are divided, but in the same sense they have power. Did you notice that? Um, yeah, so that's, in a way, the Bible is the first attempt to explain the Jews' political situation. It explains why, um, you know, why they have a decentralized, dispersed <clears throat> life, why having a centralized political rule was a bad idea for them. So there's a kind of political argument that's being made in the Bible about how the Jews should be organized politically, and it 
by no means ended the debate because that debate is still ongoing to this very day. Especially with the state of Israel. What do you think about the idea? Because interestingly, a lot of religious Jews oppose the institution of such a state. They argued that that would be a sign of rebellion against God, that would be rushing things too much rather than trusting in the plan of Hashem to bring the Messiah in his own time. Right, so there is a there is a there is a um, a religious minority amongst the Orthodox community that rejects the legitimacy of the state of Israel, rejects Zionism, precisely for the reasons you just said. They see that as um, taking something, taking a kind of power that belongs to God and usurping it for human beings, or they see it as kind of rushing the Messianic age, making trying to make the Messianic age happen happen earlier than God wants it to happen. So there is a very small number of Jews in Israel who or in the United States, who, who don't recognize the political legitimacy of Israel. Um, on the other hand, uh, that obviously the vast majority of Jews in Israel do accept the political legitimacy of the state, and it's worth noting that the state is not a monarchy, it's not ruled by a king, it is a democracy, it's a, you know, a democracy with many, many challenges and problems, but it is organized as a democracy, so the questions that Israel faces today are very different from the questions that the ancient Israelites faced on a political level. Yeah, but in terms of ethics and how to be as a people, I think I would think that the ancient Israelites and the modern Jews have some similarities there, don't you think? Um, there are definitely lines of continuity, absolutely. Yeah. And before we get back to Solomon, I want to bring back the question to David. What do you think of him in, com- in comparison to Solomon? Because we do have some more insight into David as a character, albeit he's a little more opaque than we give him credit for. Um, that's correct, and he, you know, he's a much more fully realized human being than Solomon is in the biblical portrait. And but he uh, reflects this underlying critique of the monarchy as well, because he, you know, starts out very strong. He he's a great warrior. He defeats Goliath. He's a singer of songs. He's a charismatic ruler. He unifies the Israelites. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. So he's all these amazing accomplishments. But in the end, he turns out bad as well. He has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, somebody else's wife. Um, that leads him into a cover-up that involves the murder of Bathsheba's husband. Um, he gets involved in a civil war with his son um, Absalom. And um, his life arguably ends in a very tragic way. So even the story of David reflects the critique of the monarchy that the, the Bible's trying to advance. Yeah, I don't know if I would say he ended badly, because he's still, by all evidence, a worshiper of God, unlike Solomon. Um, that's, that's, that's a fair point. So he's not... Um, uh, you know, Solomon really goes so too far, and what and results from Solomon's sin is that God says, I'm going to punish the Israelites by splitting Solomon's kingdom in two. And so after the death of Solomon, there's a rebellion against Solomon's son, and ten of the tribes of Israel leave his kingdom and form their own kingdom, which is called the Kingdom of Israel, and only two tribes are left in David's original kingdom, which is called the Kingdom of Judah. So you're absolutely right that the sin of Solomon was much greater and as a result, the punishment was much greater as well. Yeah. And I want to come back to Solomon, because the origins of his kingship are very blood-drenched, especially if we consider that Solomon was a king in whose reign there was peace. But the start of his kingdom is basically in blood. He kills the former commander of the army, Joab, 
son of Zeruiah, and he kills his brother Adonijah. He even kills this man named Shimei. And basically, the origin is in blood. As the prophet Nathan said, the sword will never depart from the house of David. And it never really went away. That's correct. So his, um, his rise to power <clears throat> is really a acting out of a curse that's placed on David and David's family. So um, it begins with bloodshed, and, you know, Solomon invokes justice. He claims, you know, that his actions are just, but um, he's very ruthless in extinguishing his enemies. And so one by one, anybody in the kingdom who can threaten his position is eliminated. So to me it's interesting how when we think of, you know, in popular culture, when we think of Solomon, we remember his wisdom, but we don't often remember the violence that precedes the wisdom. Yeah, and even in the first show of his wisdom, he does threaten to kill a baby. Of course, he's not actually going to kill the baby, as we learn in the end, but there is that threat there, and we should take that into account more than we do. That's an excellent point. And when you bring back the transgression that was within his wisdom, are there any legends from Jewish fable that can illuminate what you're talking about? Um, so one of the things I tried to do in the book is incorporate into my story um, various traditions about Solomon that emerged amongst later Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And I should note that one of the reasons I was attracted to Solomon as a subject is because um, he's an important figure for all three major monotheistic faiths. And he appears in the Old Testament, and he's mentioned in the New Testament, and he's also a figure in the Quran. And I'm fascinated by the fact that Solomon was uh, embraced by all three major religious traditions. So um, there are many Midrashic stories about every aspect of Solomon's life, um, his childhood, um, the construction of the temple, um, and other moments in his life. And yes, um, Jewish interpreters of the Bible also tried to explain his downfall. And, you know, some even suggest that it was rooted in a misreading of the Bible itself, um, that Solomon read that very law about the king that appears in Deuteronomy, and saw that that law included a warning against the king following the gods of other people. And because he knew about that warning, and he thought, and was very confident that he would not violate it, he actually became complacent and ended up violating it anyways. And the only reason he became complacent was because he thought he knew a lot about the Torah, or about the Bible. So um, that's a midrash from the ancient rabbis, and uh, the book includes many stories that are drawn from the rabbis and from Christians and from Muslims. Yeah, and I want to bring the question of the temple into this, because in the midrash we might see some legends here or there about Solomon using demons to build the temple. And in the Bible, I think there is some interesting ambiguities about how the temple is portrayed. Of course, God endorses the temple at the very end. But at the very origins, I think it's a human effort. It's not like God created the idea for the temple like he did with the tabernacle. That's correct. And when David first um, gets the idea, you know, in Second Samuel, it's David, not Solomon, but David who first gets the idea of building a house, a permanent house for God. And God does not like that idea. God uh, doesn't want to live in a permanent house. He wants to live in a tent. That's what the um, tabernacle is. It's really a tent um, that moves around from place to place um, as the Israelites journey across the wilderness. 
And um, as it moves from place to place, God's residence moves from place to place. So God really never wanted to settle down in one place. And David wanted to build a house for him, but God refuses. And then Solomon later tries again and succeeds. But the Bible clearly suggests that that's not necessarily what God wanted either, that God didn't necessarily want to be fixed in one place and in one building. Yeah, and hence why I notice that God does give a warning against idolatry right around the moment after Solomon built the temple and had his prayer and everything was good. That's very perceptive. So, um, you know, the Bible's not 100% clear about this, but it drops hints here and there that God sees trouble about to happen with Solomon, that he's not, um, that he knows that things aren't going to turn out well in the end. And what do you think of the story of the Queen of Sheba? I know a lot of Christians have commended the Queen of Sheba for her wisdom, and Jesus uses her in a positive context, but I've heard that some Jewish and Muslim interpreters don't have a very positive view of the Queen of Sheba. What do you think? I think the Bible itself is a little neutral and semi-positive. Um, so the Bible, I, I, I think it's fair to say that the Bible is neutral or it's ambiguous about how it regards the Queen of Sheba, but she is unusual because she um, seems very, very smart, and she poses a series of riddles to Solomon to test his wisdom. And both Jewish and Muslim uh, interpreters developed that hint in the Bible about her riddles into a full-fledged legend um, about the, the various riddles and puzzles that the Queen of Sheba posed to Solomon. And, 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 and different communities kind of interpret her in different ways. But in, for example, Ethiopia, which is a you know, Christian culture, um, she's a heroine. She's a positive figure. She's the um, founder of Ethiopian culture. And um, until the 1970s, the Ethiopians were ruled by a royal dynasty that claimed to be the descendants of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. So she was a very positive figure in Ethiopian tradition, and she's often a very positive figure in, in certain Islamic traditions, but also in Islamic tradition and in Jewish tradition, she becomes, she's imagined by some people as a kind of demon. Yeah. Um, and, and she uh, uses her riddles in order to trick Solomon, or to try to trick Solomon, and Solomon um, is able to overcome her and the challenge that she represents because he's, his wisdom includes a knowledge of how to control the demons. So sometimes she's a positive figure, but sometimes she's a demonic figure. Yeah. I also want to bring back to this question in the Bible where it says, and he gave her everything she wished for. And I wonder if there is any implication at all of a sexual relationship between both of them, which would result in the birth of Menelik, who then went to Ethiopia and founded the dynasty. That's according to the legend. Yes, yeah, so I think there is that suggestion, and, <laughs> and that's exactly what led people like the authors of the Ethiopian tradition to imagine Solomon and the Queen of Sheba having a sexual relationship. That was also true in Islamic tradition, that there were stories about their romantic relationship or their sexual relationship. Um, so yeah, it inspired this wonderful tradition of a basic of a kind of romance, not always a positive romance, but a of a, but a romance nonetheless. sexual relationship. I'm sorry? But a romance nonetheless. Yeah. So you think this is in the Bible, right? Or at least implied. Um, it's it can be read as being implied, yes. Fascinating. Fascinating. And, and I've also 
And I've also heard people say that the Queen of Sheba might not necessarily be the Queen itself, but maybe like the Kingdom of Sheba. What do you think of that? Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, I think that, well, first of all, we don't know where Sheba was. We don't know where the, uh, the Kingdom of Sheba was located, and there's all kinds of theories about where it was located. And some people think it was in Yemen, and other people think it was in Ethiopia, and other people think it was even farther away than that. Um, so we don't know very much about that kingdom. Uh, but the Bible seems very clear that we're talking about a woman, um, and that's certainly how later interpreters understood understood this figure, that she's a woman, she's uncommonly wise, um, and she's, of all the rulers of the world, she's the one that challenges Solomon the most. Interesting. And I want to bring back the question of Solomon and the Chronicles, which is, the Chronicles is a later book in the Bible. It's divided into First and Second Chronicles. And what I noticed is that there is a largely positive portrait of Solomon and the Chronicles, nothing negative at all. And I wonder why is that? I know Chronicles is uh, like something that came after the exile. That's right. So the book of Chronicles, or First and Second Chronicles, was probably written 100 or 200 years after the Babylonian exile, which happened in 586 BCE. And um, it's a retelling of the stories that we have in uh, the book of Kings. So a lot of it is just a verbatim repetition of stories that we have in an earlier biblical composition. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of us don't read it. It's just repeating what's already been said. However, whoever wrote that text edited things very carefully and added material and took out material. And in their account of King Solomon, they took out all the bad stories about Solomon. So basically, um, any story that would make Solomon look like a negative figure was erased in the chronicler's version of the story. So... Um, uh, the story about the, his downfall, for example, is, is taken out because it's a negative story about Solomon. So it's kind of a whitewashing of King Solomon. Yeah. I and, tend to see and, Chronicles uh, as a one long whitewash in the Bible. Yes. does the same thing with David. You know, every negative story, <clears throat> the, the story of David's affair with Bathsheba is taken out. Um, so most of the negative stories about King David are also are also removed. But they do keep that story about David taking the census when that's depicted as wrong, but they put it on Satan instead of having God tempt David. Right. So they, you know, sometimes the chronicler will erase the story, sometimes the chronicler will modify the story. Um, and, uh, you know, some biblical figures um, are made to look better than they are in Kings, but other biblical figures are made to look worse than they are in the Book of Kings. So um, it's kind of a more black-and-white version of Israelite history, where um, kings are either completely good or completely bad, and there is not a lot of space for in-between. And I want to bring back the question of Solomon and his poetry. I mean, I wonder how much relevance the poetry might have for Solomon's life and understanding, especially since his poetry includes Proverbs, which are attributed to him, Koheleth, which is in many cases attributed to him, and of course the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Yeah, so we have these three books in the Bible, um, books of poetry that were attributed to King Solomon. We don't know if Solomon actually wrote them. That's a tradition that he wrote them. And they're... Um, 
fascinating. Each one is fascinating in its own right. So the book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. Um, the book of Kohelet is also a collection of wise sayings, but the author seems more cynical than Proverbs. He's very skeptical about what people can understand about reality, and um, he questions a lot of the ideas that are in the book of Proverbs. And then we have the book of the Song of Songs, which is a, a very erotic love poem about two lovers. And they're all attributed to Solomon. And one of the debates that emerges amongst the interpreters of the book later on in, in, among Jews and Christians is at what point in his life did Solomon write these books and in what order? And there arose a tradition that um, the Song of Songs must have been something that he wrote when he was a teenager because it's so erotic, it's so focused on the physical body. And the book of Proverbs reflects something he probably wrote when he was 40, you know, more mature, but, um, and very successful at that point in his life. And then Kohelet, which is the most cynical of the three books, is something that he wrote at the end of his life, uh, after he had sinned and when he had become somewhat disillusioned. So if you believe that tradition, the three poetic books gives a, give us snapshots of Solomon at three different stages of his life. But you pose a different scheme where Ecclesiastes is actually written at a younger stage in life and Song of Solomon is actually at a much older stage. And especially part of your scheme is also to critique the idea of old men as naturally passionless and you want to show that old men can indeed have passion and that if Song of Songs was written in Solomon's old years that it actually proves your point. That's right. So I mentioned in the book another tradition which flips the order, as you just noted, and says, no, you know what, the, the book that Solomon wrote as a teenager was Kohelet, because if you think about what teenagers are like, they're often rebellious, they don't believe what their elders have told them, they're skeptical, um, and that's the kind of voice that we have in Kohelet. So some people believe that was the first book he wrote, and on the other hand, the book of his old age was actually the Song of Songs, um, where the author recognizes that the most important thing in life is not wisdom, but love, um, where the author hasn't lost the passion that he's had in life, but is also very aware of death. Um, and so some people would say that that was the final thing that Solomon wrote, and is, and is therefore the peak of Solomon's wisdom. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point. I would also mention that Song of Songs also has elements of what could look like a later stage of Biblical Hebrew. It also has Aramaic elements and all that stuff, so it could seem like a later book than either Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Um, that's definitely possible, and, and the truth of the matter is that we really don't know when or in what circumstances any of these books were written, um, and what I'm describing are later traditions that developed amongst Jews and Christians who were trying to understand what the meaning of these works were and at what stage in Solomon's life he wrote them. Yeah. I also have a quick question. What do you think of Solomon's story as it relates to the question of whether foreigners or foreign women can enter into the community of Israel? And I've sometimes heard of people using Solomon's story as an argument against interfaith marriages, especially in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where Solomon is used as a figure of how even he sinned because he married non-Israelite women. Yeah, so that's very interesting. And, we, and you're absolutely right that um, the version in Kings that we have of Solomon's life uh, suggests that marrying a foreign woman 
pose a danger to the Israelites' faith. That if you marry a, a woman who is from another religious tradition, you are inevitably going to follow that that your wife's religious tradition and leave leave the covenant with God. So, whoever wrote the Book of Kings saw a foreign woman as a threat. Yeah, and that's also true of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. However, there's another book in the Bible called the Book of Ruth, and that is a story about a a, a foreign woman, a, a Moabite named Ruth, and um, She's not a bad guy. She doesn't do anything wrong. She actually is a very, very uh, faithful person, and she eventually becomes uh, part of the Israelite community. And she becomes, she marries an Israelite named Boaz, and they give rise to the line that leads to King David and therefore to King Solomon. So according to that story, um, not only are foreign women not a threat, but David and Solomon themselves descend from a pious foreign woman. A Moabite named Ruth. So there's something like an argument going on within the Bible about the role of non-Israelite women in the community. Yeah, and of course Isaiah the prophet generalizes that non-Israelites who worship God or Yahweh would be welcomed into the community. And I wonder if that passage in Malachi which says that God hates divorce, I wonder if that's referring to that period where Israelite men were divorcing their foreign wives because Ezra and Nehemiah commanded them to do so. What do you think? That's a very interesting theory. So I, I, I think it's very possible that what we have in books like that is, are, are different points of view in a debate about the boundaries of the Israelite community and who belongs and who doesn't belong. And some biblical books draw a very sharp boundary and say there's no room in this community for women who are foreign in origin. And other biblical books like the Book of Ruth are saying, no, those women are welcome into the community. So there, there was a debate about this, I think, um, in that time period. Yeah, and it goes back to the early period of the Bible where this woman named Cosby, she's a foreign woman, and she's married to an Israelite man, and the Israelite priest Phinehas basically stabs them both in a Friday the 13th-style stabbing move. Basically, he stabs them together, like takes a spear and pins them through. And God blesses that, and at the same time, we don't see anything negative stated about Cosby, the woman in question. We don't necessarily see her explicitly trying to lead this Israelite man into idolatry. For what we know, maybe she might have done that in Legends, but I don't see any explicit statements about why she should have died, simply simply that she was a foreign woman and that she was part of a larger problem, and so she had to go violently. And another situation where... Moses is married to a foreign woman named Zephora, and this later becomes a point of contention when Miriam and Aaron are criticizing him for it. And then David himself is married to a foreign woman, Bathsheba, who is a Hittite woman from all we know. And Joseph, the great hero, is married to an Egyptian woman. And these are instances where marriage to foreign women doesn't exactly seem to be condemned. But at the same time, you have instances in the Book of Kings like Jezebel. She's basically the worst nightmare of whoever wrote that book. She's she's a pious woman by her religious standards, but those religious standards are not the standards that the people of Israel will want to follow. Right, so you, you've zeroed in on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, what must have been a very important social and religious debate in Israelite society about who belongs to this community and, you know, whether foreigners should be welcomed into the community. And I find it very interesting that the Bible doesn't register just one view, but it registers multiple views. Yeah. And 
interestingly, God sometimes depicts himself metaphorically as being married not just to the Israelites, but even to other communities. Am I right, as far as I remember? Um, I'll have to think about that, but... I'll have to re- I'll have to check back in the Bible. Yeah. What's definitely the case is that, <clears throat> for Christianity, for example, you know, Ruth is Moabite. She's part of the ancestry of King David and Solomon, and that means she's part of the ancestry of Jesus. So it's very important in early Christianity, because remember, early Christianity began as a, as a form of Judaism. And so already from the very genealogy of Jesus, you have the message that, you know, this is a form of Judaism where non-Jews will be welcome into the community. Um, and that's signified by the role of a non-Jew Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus himself. Yeah. And of course, Abraham himself doesn't become a Jew until he circumcises himself, and Abraham and Sarah are essentially foreign women by Jewish standards at some point. Am I right? Uh, Yes, in a sense, yeah. And which brings me back to Solomon. Of course, the author himself attributes the problems that Solomon had to to these marriages, but in the Book of Chronicles, we don't see much comment on those things, or... If there are any comments on foreign wives, they're mentioned as a matter of fact, nothing wrong, nothing right. Right. So, um, uh, you do have, you know, there's a few of those wives that are singled out. Um, one is the daughter of Pharaoh. Solomon, we don't know her name, but Solomon is said to have married a daughter of Pharaoh. Um, in later Jewish and Christian legends, there are stories about other wives. And... Um, Oftentimes, it's a very, very bad thing that Solomon marries these women. I mean, it's not a good thing that he marries them. And so the chronicler's way of dealing with that is to kind of just downplay it all, because for him, that's a very, very embarrassing dimension of Solomon's life. And for the chronicler, Solomon was a hero. He was the builder of the temple. And so for Solomon to have done such an embarrassing thing created what you know psychologists call cognitive dissonance, and the chronicler just couldn't handle that. So he resolved it by eliminating the negative side of the Solomon story. Yeah. So do you think Solomon ended well in some way, despite his fall, if we consider that the Song of Songs may have been written in his later period? Did you think he found something better than wisdom? Well, that's what certain Jewish traditions suggest, that after the end of his monarchy, he there's a legend that he was banished from Jerusalem after the end of his kingship, and he went on a journey of three years, um, where basically he lived the life of a beggar, and wandered from place to place. And in that legend, Solomon acquires a kind of new kind of wisdom, a different kind of wisdom, um, a wisdom that is rooted not in uh, not in arrogance or in uh, a presumption that it can overcome every boundary, but a wisdom rooted in empathy for other people. And so, yeah, I would like to believe that's what, that's how Solomon ended his life. Um, and that might be the kind of wisdom that we have reflected in the book of Kohelet, or maybe the book of Song of Songs, um, which recognize that there are things more important than success, more important than power, more important even than wisdom. Um, and that those things include, for example, love of other human beings and empathy for other human beings. And which brings me to the question of the Shakespearean hero King Lear, the 
Jewish critic Harold Bloom once made a comparison that King Lear is not so much a Job-like figure, but is actually more like King Solomon. And when you mentioned the legend of King Solomon living a beggar-like existence, I think of King Lear living on the blasted heath. And I'm thinking that there is some kinship between Lear and Solomon as a result. That's a very nice connection, which I don't mention in the book, and I like that very much. Another comparison, another literary comparison that many people have made is to Faust, the figure of Faust, who was this um, magician who made a deal with the devil um, in order to acquire knowledge or to acquire other kinds of powers, and by the end of his life has come to regret that deal. So people have shown that the legend of King Solomon was the inspiration for the legend of Faust, and the legend of Faust, in turn, is the inspiration for stories like Frankenstein and other modern stories about people who make metaphorical deals with the devil in order to acquire new kinds of knowledge. So I think it's a very nice insight to see that the story of King Solomon lives on in reverberations in later literature like Shakespeare's play. Yeah. That would be a very nice thing to draw out more. I think the comparisons between Lear and Solomon can be sustainable, especially if we take the Solomon of the later wisdom books like Coeleth and then compare him to King Lear. You see a little bit of pessimism, but also a kind of wisdom and energy there. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I did not, I did not make that point in the book, and I think you know that would be a great argument to develop. I hope Harold Bloom sends me a thank you note for bringing that out, actually. <laughs> I hope so, too. So what is some of your other scholarly work? Would you like to share with our listeners about that? I'd be happy to. So um, a more recent book that I published, uh, just came out uh, last year, is a book entitled The Origin of the Jews, and it is an attempt to look at all the different ways that scholars have tried to account for the origin of the Jews. Um, so historical approaches, archaeology, genetics, use of genealogy. These are all different approaches that scholars have used in order to try to fill in what happened at the very beginning of the story of the Jews. So um, that's a book that um, is really meant to illumine a, a kind of a mystery. People don't even realize it's a mystery. They just assume the Jews come out of the Bible. But historians have called that account into question. And this book is an introduction to the various theories and hypotheses that scholars have developed in order to account for where the Jews come from. Nice. That's interesting. And you wrote a book on the self and antiquity. What's the purpose of that book? So that book is is actually an edited book that brings together studies from different scholars. And the goal of that book was really to explore, it was really to make a contribution to the what's called the history of the self. So the history of how... Um, how people perceive themselves, uh, the history of individualism, the history of identity, and what we were trying to do in that particular book was to look at how religion had shaped various ancient ideas of the self. So some of the articles are about the Jews, some are about Christians, some are about the Greeks or the Romans, and the idea was to explore how religion shaped how these ancient peoples understood themselves and where the idea of the soul comes from and other ideas that we have about who we really are, what is the core of our self, or what is, what is the core of our identity. So um, that's a 
pretty scholarly book, and it reflects new research from a variety of different authors. And really the goal is just to understand how religion um, has shaped our sense of identity all the way in ancient times, all the way back in ancient times. Interesting. And I wonder what the difference between the Hebrew word nefesh, which includes soul but also includes much more than that, I wonder the difference between that and something like the Christian or the Platonic concept of the soul. Right. So you mentioned Platonic. So Plato introduced this idea, Plato the Greek philosopher introduced this idea that the body and soul are very separate. And the body's temporary and it's corruptible and um, it's bad. Whereas the soul is eternal and it's a kind of true essence. And um, at death, according to Plato, um, the body, the soul is split from the body, and the soul goes on to live an eternal existence detached from the physical body. So that was an idea that originated amongst, you know, within Plato, who's a Greek philosopher, and it obviously is very similar to the Christian conception of the soul as detachable from the body and capable of surviving the death of the body, and really the kind of pure essence of an individual is the soul, not the body. So what's interesting about the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is that it was written before Plato, and it doesn't make that separation between the body and the soul that many Christians and Jews do today. So the word nephesh, which is related to the word breath, it really, better than translating that word as soul, it's better to understand it as breath. Um, it's our life force, it's something in us, but it can't really be separated from the physical body. Um, so it really reflects a different idea of how the self works uh, than would later develop amongst Christians and Jews in a much later historical period. Which I think will also have some implications into how we read the Song of Songs, which many have allegorized as either God's love for Israel or God's love for the Church. And I tend to think that the reading, which now takes it as an erotic song of love between a man and a woman, is generally the right way to read it. But I also think there is room to read it allegorically as well. We can also read it as both an erotic song and the song of God's love for us and the love we should show for each other in some sense. And the way that the Song of Songs is written might originate from the Hebrew nefesh because there is no... no derogatory portrait of the body in there. Far from it. Uh, I Absolutely, it's very astute. So I think the Song of Songs comes from a world before Plato um, where the body wasn't necessarily seen as a bad thing. So Plato, you know, who gave us so many wonderful ideas, also gave us a kind of bias against the body, the physical body. And Nietzsche um, points The body's this a out. problem, the body's corruptible, the body is the source of um, negative desires, and not everybody shares that idea, and a lot of the Hebrew Bible was written in an age before that idea, and is not anti-body in the same way. Yeah, but the Christian Bible at least has a more negative stance, it appears to be, though at least official Christianity has formed a kind of compromise that the body is good, but that fulfilling the desires aren't always a good idea. And I've also heard that at least in in terms of how we dwell in heaven, that the soul is indeed detached from the body, but that at some point we'll get a glorified body where body and soul will then be together somehow. I don't know all the finer details of how that works. I'll have to refresh my memory on that. Yes, but 
the um, from a historical point of view, the New Testament, which was written in Greek, um, is written in a culture that's already influenced by the ideas of Plato. So, and it reflects, um, and Christianity reflects some of the ideas of Plato and his attitude toward the body. So, you know, for some Christian thinkers, um, the body was a source of sin. The body was something you had to overcome. And the flesh and spirit you are know. incompatible by nature. Yeah. And Nietzsche kind of pointed this out, Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a great scholar and great philosopher. And he's very critical of Plato. He's very critical of Christianity. But he has surprisingly positive words to say about the Old Testament and even about Jews in general. Did you notice that? Um, yeah, in fact, his, you know, one of his famous works, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, it, it has a kind of biblical style. And Zarathustra, who's a Persian prophet, he's kind of modeled on a biblical prophet, and even though Nietzsche is challenging our idea of God and challenging traditional conceptions of religion, nevertheless, he's using a kind of Bible prophetic style to express his views. Yeah. So what lessons do you think we can glean from Solomon's life, at least for us moderns? Um, well, there's so many lessons to learn from King Solomon. I mean, I uh, already kind of alluded to the fact that, on the one hand, Solomon embodies the value of wisdom, and um, one of the reasons we're so interested in Solomon is because he embodies the possibility of overcoming the limits of human knowledge and acquiring uh, an understanding of how the world really works. So for some readers, what's important about Solomon is what he can teach us about ultimate understanding. But for other readers, he's an illustration in the limits of wisdom or in the dangers of wisdom. And I think what I would stress as we think about contemporary life and the challenges of contemporary life is that, um, you know, we're living in a society that really doesn't appreciate wisdom. It really doesn't understand or have much value for wisdom anymore. It's more, it's more interested, in, interested in data and in knowledge, which are very different from wisdom. So for me, um, the story of Solomon is a chance to kind of think again about what wisdom is and why it's valuable and whether we really want it or not. And from what I know, I think I would want wisdom, but at the same time, I would also want love. Um, well, that sounds pretty wise to me, actually. Yeah. I don't know how wise I am, actually. I'm very knowledgeable, for sure. Um, well, I... I, uh, you've got a few years to figure things out in that regard. Okay. So I want to thank you for coming on to the show. I really appreciated your comments, and I want to thank you on behalf of my listeners, because you really have some great words to say about this interesting subject. Um, well, I enjoyed our conversation very much, and I appreciate your interest in the book. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, you have been listening to the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun.
Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.